0: It is a joyous blessing that we've each been given this morning to assemble and to gather in the way that we are. And I'm reminded of that famous text in Psalm 118, verse 24, This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It is the case that as we come together this Lord's Day morning, this first Sunday in December, it is a day of such great reflection for so many reasons. A day of just mentioned in prayer that we have so much to be thankful for a day in which we can honor God who has made all those wonderful things possible. It is the case, isn't it, that we have been considering the words spoken by Jesus while He was on the cross. You may, in fact, have before you a Bible that has certain words in red, as, of course, those words supposedly directly spoken by the very Son of God Himself. As you read those words in red... Sometimes there are phrases, sometimes that there are particular statements in our modern culture that place extraordinary emphasis upon those words in red. You and I have noticed while on the cross, He made several statements, not the least of which were these that you and I have considered already so far in this series. If you would briefly recollect with me the amazing character of some of these phrases. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That was found in Luke 23, 34, and we noticed in that lesson the incredible emphasis that these words were spoken by a man himself hanged on a cross, and he said it with respect to the very ones who had placed him in that position. In the following Sunday, the one after that one, we looked at Luke 23, 43. There when Jesus, in speaking relative to one of those thieves, said, "'Today shalt thou be with me in paradise?' We use that lesson to remind us about the grandeur of life beyond the grave and the fact that there is a paradise. And all of those who die in the Lord can look forward to being in that special place. The Sunday following. We look at that text in John 19, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus, in referring there to His mother, said, "'Woman, behold thy son,' and also to John, "'Behold thy mother.'" He committed unto John the safekeeping and the provision of his own mother and her waning elder years of life. Fascinating, isn't it? In the week following that one, after having looked at these, we turned our attention to Matthew 27, 46. When Jesus on that occasion, in the midst of darkness said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You and I came to appreciate the depth and the profoundness attached to that forsaken character because for a moment he was there left alone to hang there for your sins and for mine finally last Sunday we turned our attention to John nineteen twenty-eight. when there we remember two little words Jesus said I thirst finally he made a statement relative to his own physical excruciating character it is with that you and I noticed the powerful means then that He did live in the flesh and therefore He is able to know exactly the issues, the heartaches and disappointments of your life and mine and He can be there to help. Today we come to lesson six in the series. This sixth lesson, as you can see at the very bottom, has to do with the word finished. And it in fact comes to us from that lesson text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. Lester read for us from John 19 verse 30. Might I invite you to be turning to that place and we will give some attention to the thrust of that particular phrase at the right moment in the lesson. As always, it seems to me though exceedingly valuable to never forget the circumstances of the one who made these statements. The very one who could speak about forgiveness and the very one who could make reference to paradise and the very one who could be thinking about the well-being of his mother was the very one who had endured that about seven hours prior to the statements that you and I are going to read today. Seven little hours. Beyond that, after enduring that, he had that done to him. Nailed to a cross, put there in such a, Pathetically humiliating position. You'll notice, as we have before, that the very one that spoke those words found himself in a position that he was nailed to that cross. And in that terrible condition, he had these words to say When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The hours on the cross had now developed to the point of darkness. You recall with me that about the noonday hour, darkness fell over the land, and though it was here in the midst of the day, and while in that darkness the Lord had made some of these statements that we've studied so far in the series, but today we notice the darkness has reached its zenith. The darkness had reached its height, if you please, by noticing that those opening statements are these. Those hours that Jesus had spent on the cross, even though there were only about six, they were hours that were filled with virtually unimaginable horror, pain, excruciating loss, there was great thirst, there was muscle spasms, no doubt, there was internal pain from almost every perspective. And yet as he endured all of those, isn't it still a remarkable truth that he was able to maintain in composure the emotions that he had? I frankly confess that it's still a remarkable and amazing thing to me to appreciate the perfection seen in Jesus from that standpoint alone. It's so easy for one's anger to lead one to say what one ought not say, to do what ought not be done, or at least to think what is not proper. And yet Jesus controlled all of His emotions and could even desire the forgiveness of those that were doing this to Him. Isn't that remarkable? What a great example that should set for each of us because it's difficult and it's challenging to withhold one's thoughts, one's words, one's actions, to restrain oneself in a way of godliness at all hours of the day. Our Savior had done it. He was still alive but barely on the cross. As you come to these particular observations, it brings us to that text that we just read. He was now just moments from death, a mere moments it would seem And he said, "'It is finished.'" I would invite you with me today to reflect on those three little words, "'It is finished.'" What was it that was finished? And by what means had it been completed? What was the thrust, if you please, the power attached to the Lord making that statement? It might do us well to notice first that word, finished, what does it mean? As you can see on the slide, it means, "'To be completed.'" It has reference, as you will notice, to something being brought to an end. Something was being brought to an end. The Lord, by whatever it was referred to by the pronoun it, it was completed. The nature of that little word it perhaps brings us to appreciate the enormity of the scope of the lesson before us today. For you see, it all begins as far back as the Garden of Eden at least in its reality. Quite frankly, it goes all the way back to eternity, the very mind of God, according to Ephesians chapter 3. Might I say, as we develop that thought, might we begin here. Our Savior, Jesus, while on the cross when He was able to say, It is finished, consider with me briefly some of the statements about the very nature of what was to be the case when He was born. You remember it well. The angel, as He spoke to Joseph, spoke to the very one who was to be Jesus' foster father, if you please. It was to Joseph that that angel said, Call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This little babe that was soon to be born, this little one that was to come from the womb of Mary, he will save his people from their sins. Just a few months later, on the occasion of his birth in Luke 2 verse 11, there the angel, in speaking to those present, able to say in grandeur about the same one. This day is born unto you in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. A Savior. You'll notice that he was not simply called a teacher, a prophet, or any other such thing. A Savior. One to save you from something. And you'll notice the grandeur of that salvation. Jesus frequently himself made reference to issues and circumstances like that. Maybe one of the most famous would be that text in Mark ten forty five, where on that occasion, Jesus, again, not too long prior to the very events of the crucifixion, He Himself would say, the Son of Man came not to minister, or rather to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. That word ransom has within it the thought of being bought back from something. The human family was in the clutches of the devil. You and I had been sold under and to sin. We had been given fully to the characteristic of that which is apart from God. Jesus said, I came to buy you back, and I came to reclaim you from the clutches of that one that's going to take you to hell if I don't act to intervene. Isn't it amazing? In light of all those verses, it brings us then to observe this. Jesus knew well it was going to involve His death. He knew well it would involve the circumstances surrounding what you and I have seen. Maybe there is no text more explicit than the one in Luke 18, verses 31 to 35, where there, while He was journeying toward Jerusalem for the very last time, he knew well what would befall Him there, and to those twelve special apostles, it was to them that He said, The Son of Man's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and spit upon and spitefully entreated. Furthermore, they're going to crucify Him and nail Him on a cross. He knew what was coming, and yet He journeyed there anyway. For you see, there was something you can see at the bottom of that slide that causes us to appreciate these particular words that Peter used in Acts chapter 2. And I'd like you to develop with me in your mind the grandeur and the interesting feature of those words. Peter said that him by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Peter made that statement on the day of Pentecost. And did you notice he said with the determinate counsel... And for knowledge of God. Those two words indicate this was a plan. It did not happen happenstantially, it did not happen circumstantially, it was by the determined conclusion and desire of God. That's what the Lord was referring to apparently when he said, It is finished. He didn't just mean his physical life in the flesh. He didn't just mean the characteristic of the operation of the organs of his body. He had something far more profound and far deeper than that. So much so, it seems entirely reasonable to refer to it as a grand master plan. It is finished. As you and I develop the thoughts of that plan, we've already seen that surely it involves thoughts that might be described with this interesting picture. For you notice, the Lord by this point had lived in the flesh... For somewhat over 33 years. In addition to that, some 4,000 years of human history had been orchestrated and brought to bear. But at this point, there was still a piece missing. It wasn't yet finished. It wasn't quite complete until the Lord was able to make this statement on the cross. And then, and then, we find the final piece put into place. What was this final piece? What was the matter to which our Savior referred on this occasion? What was the issue surrounding the final piece to the puzzle? It was being completed and finished at the time that, of course, Jesus was now about to end His life. As you look in developing that thought with me, why don't we see if we can't do it in the following way. Jesus knew well that His life in the flesh, knew very well that His sojourn here upon earth, was not just a matter related to carrying out a good set of teachings. There's no question He had done that. He had taught the Sermon on the Mount. Three scintillating, enthralling chapters in which He had said things like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Matthew 7, 12. Occasions in which He had washed the feet of those disciples and taught them lessons they'd never forget, John 13, verses 10 and following. We remember he had in fact touched in amazing ways the lives of so many. He'd raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd raised the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7 and John 12 respectively. You notice in light of all of that, there was still something missing. To develop that thought takes us directly to the heart and core of all that is really to be found in the Word of God. The central overarching theme that describes all of it. That central overarching theme takes us to the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve and put them in this place called Eden. It was a majestic garden, wasn't it? A place free from all the difficulties of everything, including sin. There was no sin originally found there. Adam and Eve lived in a marvelous relationship with each other and with God. And in so doing, they had access to the Tree of Life. They were told expressly, though never ever, to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. But you and I remember that catastrophically things changed in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve both partook of that forbidden fruit. In so doing, sin entered the world and they were removed from God, separated from Him because of their disobedience. Inasmuch as that transgression then caused them to know the reality of a sentence of physical death, far more serious was the spiritual death that it brought. They no longer had the communion with God that they once had enjoyed. Their sin had separated them from Him. You'll notice in that separation, that links so beautifully and so very powerfully to verses like these. For the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. Wasn't it true that James, in joining in the discussion of that point in James chapter 1 verses 13 and following, it was there he said, "'Let no man say when he is tempted, "'I am tempted of God. "'For God cannot be tempted with evil, "'neither tempteth he any man. "'But every man is tempted when he is drawn away "'of his own lust and enticed. "'Then when lust hath conceived, it "'bringeth forth sin.' Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You'll notice the very next words are these, Do not err, my beloved brethren. To that we might well add that famous refrain that points the finger directly at each and every one of us. It might be so quickly easy to point the finger at Adam and Eve. Look at what you did. Why did you make that fatal error? Of introducing sin into the world. Why did you listen to the devil? And yet, might we say, just as surely as we point the finger at them, there are at least three pointing back to me and to you. For isn't it true that Paul said, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God? I have my share, and so too do you. All of us have transgressed the command of God, all of us have fallen short of His perfection. And you and I are told in Matthew five forty eight, 48, be perfect. That degree of perfection demanded of us brings us then to realize that the sadness and soreness that goes with that in every instance separates us from the God that loves us. Isaiah 59 beginning in verse 1 perhaps paints it as vividly as any other passage. Where there to ancient Israel God through the prophet Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shorted that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Those iniquities separated ancient Israel from God, drove an incredibly wide canyon between them and God. And may I say that your sins and mine today still do that. They separate us from the one who loves us, the one who has heaven waiting for those that are the faithful. That degree of separation is highlighted in Ephesians 2 verse 1. There Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, to them it was, he said, "'Your sins and your iniquities have brought you to death. You're dead in trespasses and sins.'" You'll notice that one more time, just like the sins of Adam and Eve brought physical death and that spiritual death as well, so too our sins bring us to die spiritually. No longer in connection to the power source of God above, we die. That degree of death, you can see with me in these verses in which we now begin to paint the beautifully dramatic picture At this point, we know that life is only found in the blood. Notice, so far, our story has taken us to death. It has taken us to sin. It's taken us to the inevitable consequence of it. But now, we know from as early as Leviticus 17, in which God told to Israel, there's life in the blood, and they were thus commanded to offer sacrifices in which blood had to be involved. The blood had to be carefully collected, sprinkled as commanded, and only then was there the promise of a future atonement by virtue of the greatest sacrifice of all. No wonder the Hebrew writer could then say, Without shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 The shedding of blood was critical then. It remains absolutely necessary now but as you and I give thought to that blood. Remember, we haven't strayed from Jesus' statement. It is finished. Notice what comes next. That sacrifice of those Old Testament characters, it had to be a sacrifice that was offered properly, but that included, as we've noted, blood. And furthermore, it was by a blemishless animal. A goat, a calf, a bull. But you notice it had to be a blemishless one. That tied in rather beautifully with our lesson text in terms of our study in the Bible class of the auditorium this morning. We noticed there from our study in Leviticus 22 that again the animal had to be one that was separated from various and sundry blemishes. That blemishly sacrifice brings us to note this: God had said in Deuteronomy 17:1 that every animal offered needed, required to be one that was without blemish. Is it any wonder in light of those things that we're challenged so amazingly then to ask? If it's blood that's required, and so it was, the options are exceedingly limited, aren't they? For after all, there's only a handful, literally a small handful of potential matters. There's the blood of a human, there's the blood of an animal. As far as you and I know, that about ends the list. However, notice the predicament in which the human family found itself. The blood of bulls and goats could never, ever take away sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4. Even though they were offered as blemishless animals, even though they were offered in the proper means, God said they only were a foreshadow. They could never by their own means take away sin. In fact, they couldn't make the people with clear conscience. They could not wash away all that aspect of it. They were a foreshadow. They were a foreshadow, a type of what was to come later. But you'll notice in the thoroughness and completion of it, aren't we challenged to note the very bottom idea? If the animal blood then couldn't do it, what about human blood? Well, you and I know that there's also a serious problem there, isn't there? No human was able to live blemishlessly. No human was able to live in that way. And we had some fine Old Testament examples like Daniel, even Moses. But they sinned. We had other individuals like Joshua, but he was a sinner too. And in fact, isn't it true all of us are? Again, Romans 3 verse 23. So notice the problem. Blood is required, but animal blood won't do. And human blood's tainted with sin. No wonder we find it is finished when Jesus finally said, there is now blood that can cleanse the sin-stained souls of men and do so in completeness and in thoroughness, not just a type that's to be fulfilled sometime later, not just a foreshadowing of some greater event to occur at some future era. The time is now. It is finished. No wonder the New Testament writer in Hebrews chapter 12, could use a three-letter word in reference to this event. And it is a word that still is astounding in its thrust. You remember the passage with me. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Could you say it again? The joy that was set before Him? Enduring the cross? You and I have looked at pictures that present this as anything but joyous. A man dripping with blood. A man who, in fact, had been so disrespectfully treated A man who had had a crown of thorns mockingly put upon his head. A man who himself was innocent. Pilate said so, and yet he still was crucified. And you're telling me that there was joy in this? The Hebrew writer said there was, and you and I have no doubt that there was. The joy that was set before him, that joy centered on the it is finished. The marvelous plan of redemption was now complete. The puzzle piece that was missing has now been put into place. That puzzle piece and the thought that ends it, may I suggest, is a grand and powerful lesson. So much so that it challenges us on a number of levels. Jesus died for my sins and yours, and the shedding of His blood is the perfect blood that allows sin to be forgiven His blood is the one that cloaks and covers you and me and allows us to stand justified and sanctified before God. His blood is the one that in fact is the completion of that marvelous plan of redemption hinted at in the days of the Old Testament and brought to bear in the days of the New. When you and I reflect upon that particular lesson that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, that occasion on which he, the church, began that day, you remember, not only did he speak about the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, but the next verse says that the bars of death were not able to hold him, but up from the grave he rose. Sometimes we sing that song. Have you ever noticed as you get to the chorus, the refrain, if you will, of that song, it gets much faster because we're happy. We're thankful to be able to sing the song, Yes, indeed, though he died for our sins, he rose to give us life. The Christian life then brings us to this slide. For I would ask you to reflect as we close the lesson on this interesting point. The Lord, when He came to this earth, knew very well that there was a purpose to be completed. It is finished, He said. He didn't just die without any thought of the objective that He was to have lived within life. That life had a purpose, a mission, an objective, if you will. It was a life directed to the accomplishment of that which he had been sent to accomplish. I suppose it would do us well to think about that same matter, at least in principle. For I realize that some of the comparisons seem so very limited when it applies to you and me. But nonetheless, the thoughts are challenging. Because you see, you two and I were brought into this earth a purpose. You and I aren't just born accidentally. We aren't just born without any thought because remember, you and I are made in the image and in the likeness of God. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 2, verse 7. Isaiah 43, 7. As well as 1 Peter 4, verse 10. And as we think about all of those passages, we know very well that then our life is to fall beneath the full conscription of of the grandeur of God. Am I serving Him every day? Am I choosing to do His will? Am I following the path that He has set forth for me? Notice again, Jesus could say that when His life upon this earth, were about to reach its end, it is finished. I wonder, can you and I make that statement? As we ebb greater in years in life, are we able to say, I've done God the best of, of which I was able. I have fulfilled that which you've given me to do. I realize it won't be done as efficiently and as perfectly as the Lord carried out His mission, but can you and I at least say that we've done what we could for the kingdom of the Lord?" I would suggest to you that some of those statements at the bottom are so very challenging as we think about the Lord carrying out His mission. He knew that He had come from heaven and it was back there. He was going, John 17, verses 3 to 5. He knew very well then that when He said, It is finished, it was a plan whereby you and I could join Him there. For He is our forerunner that leads to heaven, Hebrews 6, verse 20. So again, I ask the question of each of us, myself included, of course. Are we using our abilities, our blessings, our capabilities in a way in which we fulfill the purpose God intended for you and me. We wouldn't want to be guilty of wasting what God has provided us with. That provision perhaps summarizes itself in some of those bottom statements. Life can be so filled with activities. And by the way, the devil wants it that way. He wants you and me to be so full with a schedule, we don't have time to think about what's the most important. We don't take the time to develop the priorities. That's what He wants. Because He knows a life lived without vision and a life lived without direction leads straight to damnation. No wonder heaven is a prepared place for those with the priorities correctly directed, purpose fulfilled. Do you and I walk then according to the purpose that God has in mind for us? Directing our families the way they ought to go. Being an employee, we ought to be. A neighbor, others that God has called upon us to serve. There's much work in life. Ecclesiastes 2.11, but so much of it's vanity and vexation of spirit, isn't it? So much of it is just busyness. It distracts us from what truly is the most important. It is finished. One final thought and the lesson will be yours. The entire whole duty of man is summarized in one verse. In that fascinating of the 31,102 verses in the Bible, there's one that maybe above all others directly challenges your mind and mine, and it does so like this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man, that whole duty seems to suggest that there's a plan for you and me as well. I realize it's not the same kind of plan that Jesus had. His was a plan to redeem everybody. But my plan and yours is a plan that locally impacts myself and those that I love and others whom I can be acquainted with in ways that show forth the light of, the, the light of Christ. You and I are described in 2 Corinthians 4 as earthen vessels though this is just an earthen vessel you and I have the light of Christ showing forth in us do you and I show that light forth are we fulfilling the purpose that God would have in mind for you and for me I hope today as we've reflected on those three little words it is finished perhaps it's fair to close the lesson by stating them one more time while Jesus was on the cross and we now are near the time of His own death, He said, it is finished. No wonder you and I can be so happy because what He said was finished was finished. The plan of salvation was complete. The last puzzle, piece was put in place. And with that in mind, the glorious matter of the church was soon to be. Today, are you a faithful member of that body? Are you fulfilling the spiritual purpose that God has in store and in mind for you? If not, why not? Heaven has done all that it can and must do in order for you to have opportunity to be saved. The decision is left to you and to me. The plan of salvation, that which is culminated by the nature of this completion. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess Him as the Son of God and be baptized. If today we could be of some assistance to you in making that a reality, don't delay Please don't wait. There will never be a better day than this one. If, on the other hand, you've known what it was like to be a faithful Christian, you know what it was like to have a purpose and a direction in life, but you have strayed from it. There are so many today who live aimlessly through life, but may I say, aimlessly in life does not lead to a destination in heaven. We need to have an aim a goal, and it should be to follow God in all ways and let Christ be our leader. He is our captain, Hebrews 2.10. If you need to come back to your first love, don't delay. Please don't wait another hour. This is the day of God's salvation, Second Corinthians 6, verse 2. There may not be another. If we could be of help to you today, as you apply to your life, it is finished. We'd be delighted to help. Won't you come while well, together we stand and sing the chosen song?